This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are working through the project of learning to invest properly. Oh, using properly, I like that. Properly. Using the strategies built and created and and proven out by investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, in particularly Warren and Charlie, and um, through them, thousands of other investors, many of whom are professional investors who are using these same strategies successfully for decades. And it's incredible that the little guy has huge advantages over these professional investors if they have the same strategy. There are many, many more companies we can look for um, that would make a difference to our portfolio and our future financial independence compared to a professional like a Buffett. Like, you know, Warren has to buy something like Apple uh, yeah. because a company that I can buy, it could double and it'd be a rounding error uh, for, for Berkshire. <laughs> so we have big advantages. Plus, we can stick to a very narrow group of companies that we're passionate about, that we really love working in. True. Um, and we we can just, just sit there in cash. I mean, we don't have to invest. Nobody is putting a gun at our head and saying, stick your money in that market now, you know, or I'm going to take my money away from you. We don't have that. And that is a absolute problem of, of enormous proportion for every professional fund manager out there. And one by one, they end up, if they invest the way we do, the cautionary tale is if you invest like a Warren Buffett or a Phil Town or a Danielle Town, if you do it that way, you will see a moment in time when your money gets taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And that cautionary tale is we've been seeing very that. real. And we were just talking last week about one of the guys that had that happen to him. In spite of being massively successful, the Who's money that? was pulled. Michael Burry. Oh, yeah, Michael Burry. At Cyan Capital. And that is such a cautionary tale for everyone that does what we do as a professional. Burry went out and found a solid investment knowing that the, that the bonds that were based on subprime real estate were going to fail. They had to fail. There was no doubt about it. And he shorted those bonds. He found a way to, to own an investment that would make money if they failed. And his investors hated him for it. And after a couple of years, he made them over $700 million. He made himself $100 million when he was proven right. And they still hated him for it. And they took their money away and Cyan Capital shut down. And yes, he's the guy from The Big Short, the movie yes, and the is. book. If you're yes, thinking this is. sounds familiar. Right. So... Um, we think he's a guy worth paying attention to. And one of the um, recent news articles about Michael Burry popped out in a lot of places, including Bloomberg well, and CNBC. He did an interview so recently, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's basically, uh, like at Bloomberg, they got the, here's the headline. The Big Shorts Michael Burry explains why index funds 
are like subprime CDOs. What's the date on that so people can look it up? That's September 4th. Okay. Written yeah, by Reed so Stevenson. he I mean he's just such a visionary and saw the subprime mortgage problems when very few other people did that obviously lots of people are interested in what he thinks the next big bust is going to be and so what does he think dad well first off let's let's be sure we understand what he means when he says index funds are like subprime cdos so he's talking about subprime real estate mortgages that means mortgages that means money that's being lent to people that have a bad credit score okay that's what subprime means so if you got a credit score like 620 or below and you get a loan on your house, that would be a company making that loan is making a subprime loan. And therefore, they're going to charge higher interest rates and they're going to have a higher failure rate. And so um, in order to compensate for the fact that some of these loans are not going to be successful, companies would sell those loans into a, a group that would collect the loans and package them into one big pile of, say, a thousand of these loans. And that big pile is a CDO. It's a, a, um, a collateralized form of debt bond. obligation. Right. So it's a, it's collateralizing the obligation with real estate is the idea. So the theory was that only some percentage of these subprime loans would ever go bad. And so if they were packaged together as a collateralized group, then owning it was still relatively safe because the rest of them would not go bad, would would right. be paid back eventually. And you're getting a much higher interest rate to compensate for the fact that some of these may have a problem. Good point. And they sold these like hotcakes all over the world. They sold these things. Now, let me just go back one step in history so you guys can understand why something that from our perspective today looks really stupid, you know, uh, assuming that a bunch of that subprime actually loans wasn't the stupid bad. part. What do you think the stupid part was? The stupid part was that they started packaging those loans with even, I don't remember what the words are, but even more sub, sub, subprime loans and didn't tell anybody. So instead of having like people whose credit score was 630, they had people whose credit score was 530 packaged in with the 630s and it became actually way, um, a much higher a chance of default than they were telling people these packages actually had. Well, the reason they weren't telling anybody was that the rating agencies were rating these packages right. as because... As like, what, as what is it, like double A? Or, yeah. yeah, double A to triple A. In other words, they had very little chance of ever going down. And so people bought them with that rating agency on it and um, and assumed it was correct. And here's the here's the history I wanted to say. Okay. Is that these CDOs didn't just come out of the blue in the 2000s. They had been building them for a long time and they had seen that they were right. That you can yeah. pile a bunch of subprime mortgages together and nothing bad happens. That's what and, I mean. That's like that's that part isn't the, isn't the dumb part. That part actually does kind of work. Yeah. Okay, but let me let me tell you where that came from. Okay. Those started in the real estate after years of experience of combining a bunch of even riskier loans. Oh. Loans being made on people's jet airplanes, on their yachts, things like that <laughs> were packaged by Wall Street into these collateralized debt obligations and sold off with high interest rates 
And for 20 years, they it worked. It was perfect. Hmm. And so the logic was, from Wall Street's point of view, is, well, crime any real estate's more secure than a jet. Yeah. Right? A lot more secure. I mean, people have a jet, their company goes broke, bam, the first thing that goes is the jet, right? But the last thing that goes is your house. So they just assumed that these mortgages were going to be less risky than jets and yachts. And the yachts and jets had been packaged together successfully for a couple of decades. So they went in and started packaging these mortgages. And that is why when they went to even worse credit scores, it didn't seem to matter because the key was not any individual credit scores, but just the whole package that almost no matter how bad the credit scores were, as long as you put enough of them together, then you're going to be fine. Right? That was the idea. That was the idea. But the problem was that they didn't explain that to anybody. Right. They didn't and, say, and, hey, and here's fact, what we're putting wrong. into this now. Oh, they were they were also wrong. They, it turned out that when your 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 subprime mortgage your subprime borrowers are actually, you know, strippers at the Platinum Club in Las Vegas who own six subprime mortgages are obligated for them and have no realistic income expectations. Um, and the only thing propping the real estate market up is them being able to flip that house before they run out of money from the loan that they got in the first place. And mm -hmm. that's what Burry saw, mm -hmm. was that, holy smokes, as you just said, that the, the level of subprime borrower had gone so far down the tubes to virtual liar loans that were being made to people that have, who knows what their income was because they were just lying about it. Mm -hmm. um, he saw that and realized that has to go down. And, and so you get the worst of these things and it's what he bet against and was, was super successful with it. So he's coming out now saying that that mess is now being replicated in index funds. That that these these mortgage bonds, which were completely um, horrible investments and could be seen to be so, are now being replicated in indexes in a in a different way, but it's the same ultimate problem. Okay, tell me That's more about that. That's what he's pointing out. Okay, so here he's basically saying that passive in, in investing is its own disaster on the rise. And that and passive investing of course as we know is being encouraged people are being encouraged to put exchange traded funds index type funds into their portfolios four or five of them across a bunch of different markets and that's what you own which means you are not the person that is managing that money for the exchange traded fund has no obligation to try to figure out the value of anything that they're buying mm -hmm. because it's indexed to whatever popular index that that exchange traded fund is tracking. So mm -hmm. let's take the S&P 500 for example. There's an index tracking fund called SPY that tracks the S&P 500. Now, this is an enormous index fund exchange traded fund and it is got you know so many people have invested in it in their retirement plan now as you put your money into this you buy this fund what's happening is the fund um, manager has to go out 
and buy the pro rata shares of stock in the index to match the index. Does that make sense? Right, yes. Okay, so if there's, let's say, 500 stocks in the index weighted according to their, their market capitalization, then what's happening is this fund manager is now going in and buying all 500 of those with today's new money that just came in from you as an investor. He's buying all 500 of those pro rata to their market capitalization. Yeah, and the truth is that it's a computer that does it. It's not a person. Yeah. So it's just yeah. done automatically. Right. Just cranks it out. And so there's here's the key. He's not checking to see if the price he's paying for that company is a good price or not. Exactly. And he's by the way, the computer also check. sells if you sell your ownership of that Oh, uh, yes. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but let me just so, say, because mm. I want to give us some credit. We have talked about this before on this podcast, this yeah, danger of index funds and ETFs. We, I think, alerted listeners to it, I want to say at least a year ago, maybe longer. So I feel a bit vindicated that Michael Burry is now also sort of ringing the bell of alarm that this is potentially a, an actual serious problem. Yep. And it's really important for you to pay attention to this, you guys, if you have money in these index funds. So you need to understand what he is saying the process will look like Yeah. Um, as we go forward here. So what does he say about that? Well, he starts by, by pointing out something pretty obvious, and that is that in the credit markets with bonds, mm -hmm. um, the idea of price discovery, meaning that you look at the bond as an investor as a professional investor and you say, oh, well, the chance of these guys paying off is more or less, whatever, right? Okay. And you're willing to pay more or less. And that's, if there's more risk, then the interest rate has to rise to mm -hmm. adjust for that. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's less risk, it can fall. So what's happened is that central banks like the Federal Reserve in the United States have forced interest rates down. They have, uh, they have shoved these rates down um, to a place where now there is no price discovery in the credit markets at all. They are holding the price at that rate by going in and, and aggressively buying bonds, buying or, or essentially printing money to is buy bonds. Is this how bonds he with. describes it, or this is mm -hmm. editorial? Yeah, this is how he's describing it. He's okay. saying, he's saying, quote, I'm quoting here: Central banks and and Basel Three, which is a banking Basel. regulation, Basel Three, Basel, sorry have more or less removed price discovery from the credit markets. And what that means is that risk does not have an accurate pricing mechanism in interest rates anymore. Hmm. So that's pretty clear, right? I mean, hmm. we know that mortgage rates for real estate would not be at 3% yeah. if the Federal Reserve which, wasn't aggressively lowering rates. Which is to your point that when the, uh, the CDOs were packaged up, they didn't adjust the interest rate accordingly for what was actually in those CDOs. Exactly. And by the way, as an aside here, we have the same thing going on again in real estate. Uh, they're now aggressively starting to lend with no money yeah. down or just a small tid of money down to subprime borrowers. Again. Well, they're also starting to offer collateralized debt obligations. Absolutely. Like I read an article about it. It's like it was called something like the big short is back or something like that. It's like right. people know and they're just doing it anyway. Because there's so much desire for yield. Like when you're in a you're trying to have a retirement account that that well, here more importantly, honestly, than retirement accounts are the obligations of the states 
and the cities in the United States mm. to their pensioners, That's which have become a really overwhelming, good point. Yeah. just yeah. gigantic obligations to pensions that they need a high interest rate mm -hmm. in order to have any hope of matching the amount of money they've put aside for these pensions and the pension de demands for cash flow. And they really are desperate for yield and being pushed into higher and higher risk. And Burry is saying that what's happening in the credit market, in the bond market, is that the interest rates are not reflecting the choices of actual investors. They are being artificially held where they are. Yes. Okay. Yes. And this is making life extremely difficult for pension managers all around the world. And and so yeah. what they're now doing is reaching for more risky assets, which means stocks. Oh. So here you are, you have to deliver for this pensioner, you know, 10 years from now at a certain amount. There's no way you're going to get there if interest rates for the 10-year T-bill are 1.5%. You yeah. look at your actuarial tables and it's just impossible. And so you have to either tax the people of Illinois a lot more, which isn't politically acceptable, or you have to reach for more risk. And what these guys are doing without telling anybody is they're saying, well, you know what? If I don't reach for the risk right now, I'm going to get fired anyway. True. So I'm going to reach for it. So what they're doing is they're going in and taking passive investments in these exchange-traded funds to replace bonds that are too low of yield to generate the kind of cash flow they're going to need in the future. That means money is pouring into the stock market with the same problem they've got in the credit market. No price discovery. Hmm. Remember, we just said that the exchange-traded fund manager is not going to go in and figure out should he buy more or less of IBM. Yep. He's just going to buy IBM because that's the, the, the pro rata piece of the index that he has to purchase. He's going to buy all 500 of those stocks pro rata with no price discovery, which makes them do what? Go up. Go up. All and of as them. they go up... This seems to encourage the passive investors at pension funds to put more money in the stock market, which again seeks no pricing. It just puts the money in pro rata and drives them up. And this has been going on for a decade now. Yeah. A decade. Yeah. And what Burry is saying is that, here I'll quote it. He says, quote, and now passive investing has removed price discovery from the equity market from the equity market. Hmm. So this is... Equities mean stocks. So what he's saying is stock. that prices do not reflect value in stocks right now. That's right. He said that the dirty secret of passive index funds, whether opened-in, closed-in, or exchange-traded funds, is the distribution of daily dollar value traded among securities within the indexes that they mimic. He's saying that there is so much money coming into such small volume companies. He's saying, for example, in the Russell index, there's a, a thousand, there's a 2000 stocks ballpark. So there's over a thousand stocks that traded at less than $5 million in value during the day. Now this is really important. And this is a little esoteric, but follow me here. Okay. okay. So can you start at the beginning the, again? So we're talking about the Russell 2000, which is, right, which is one of the indexes, which is a, a small cap index, right? Right, right. So it has about 2,000 stocks in it and is a place that a lot of pension fund managers are putting money in a passive index, which means those 2,000 stocks are bought without any price discovery. Mm -hmm. They're just purchased. Now, his point is that he counted over 1,000 of those stocks 
that trade at less than $5 million during the day. So, and almost half of them traded at less than a million dollars during the day. Are you saying not traded at like, like that, that less than $5 million was coming in and out of that particular stock? Correct. Okay. Less than 5 million and less than a million on, on 456 of them. All right. So what that means is that's not a lot of trading. That's really not a lot. It's not a lot of money. Yeah. And that, and so when you're thinking about, well, what kind of money is coming in through indexing and passive investing, hundreds of billions of dollars over the last decade are linked into those stocks that trade at under a million dollars a day. Okay. So Mm -hmm. think about this for a second. Let's say you have a billion dollars that has been purchasing that one stock for the last decade. So in in 10 years, a billion dollars has come into that little bit at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Dribbled in, but now it's locked in. It's in the index. So it's in there. Now, what happens if the index starts to go down, right? What happens if it goes down? Well, you, as you were saying earlier, you reverse all of those trades. So the manager has to go sell every one of those 2,000 stocks, including the one that only You're has a million dollars a day You're saying the index manager trading. now, the computer yeah. that manages the index goes and right. sells all uh, the, the pro rata share of each of those stocks that are in the pro index. Pro rata share of each of those. And now think about this. The 456 of those stocks have less than a million dollars a day trading. Now, what happens when $2 million a day tries to get out? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what happens is the computer starts seeking a price that someone wants to buy. And since the buyers are outnumbered two to one by sellers, let's say, mm-hmm. the price goes down a lot. It drops. In that day. Boom. It drops. It gaps yeah. a little bit. Yeah. All right. And that causes the index to gap a little bit. And that causes computer programs in these pension funds that are saying, hey, if this thing starts to go down, get out. It causes those things to send in sell orders faster. And as it sends in sell orders faster, prices like the prices start to drop more aggressively. That sends in sell orders faster, and you end up in this wicked cycle of downward cycle that gaps the index down. And what happens from that is you end up with a huge amount of fear as these indexes are having trouble exiting these positions. And get this, they have to exit. It's not like somebody is sitting there saying, oh, well, I can wait a couple of days. You've put in a sell order on the entire index and all 2,000 stocks are going to be sold right now. Wherever the price is, right now. It has to get sold. So if the price is dropping like a brick, too bad. The index doesn't care. Boom, sell it. Mm. And man, if you have a lot of money coming in that says sell, you do not have liquidity. You do not have liquidity. And he's saying this, he says, essentially, you have trillions of dollars in assets that are globally indexed to these stocks, but you, and you have, you have lots of room in the theater, but you only have one exit. And that exit hasn't changed its size one iota 
the exit is the same size. So now you've got trillions of dollars trying to get out of the theater that's now full of smoke and on fire and they can't exit. And all of this gets worse as you get into even worse, you know, even less liquid stocks like in foreign countries. And I'm trying to think how this differs globally. from a situation in which people or computers, whatever, want to sell, but it's not an index fund. It's not a ETF. It's just other kinds of funds that maybe have chosen those stocks or actual people. So the way this differs, and I'm just sort of working this out, is that it's so broad. I think that's how it differs. It's an index fund that that pegs to the absolute entire index, all 500 stocks of the S&P or all 2,000 stocks of the Russell, all being sold at the same time, as opposed to what? As opposed to, let's say, some other kind of fund that like chooses companies because they're all whatever, like have five different criteria and it's different than other funds. And so it would be selling companies at different times, perhaps than other sorts of funds. Well, I think the main thing is you have, ultimately you have someone with a brain making a decision to hold off. I mean, in other, in other words, if, if, if panic, if panic sets, excuse me, if panic sets in, it doesn't matter whether it's a computer or a human. If the sell order I'm is I'm not talking about computer or human. Driven, what Burry is saying is that this is a different situation than any other time that there could be a crash because there are index funds. Right. And so I'm, I'm working out what is the difference between index funds and other kinds of funds? The sheer size. And I think it's the sheer size. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, the and that they're all they sold all at the same time as right. opposed to it being at least somewhat staggered. And obviously there have been numerous crashes. So like this happens with staggered sorts of funds too. But, but he's saying this could be a huge crash because I think of the, the size and the, what's it called when everything happens at the same time, not consecutive, but um, yeah, whatever the, other <laughs> the other thing. The other thing. Now making it even worse is that there are a lot of naked derivatives on these indexes. Okay, tell me more about and that. This is this is one of the things that triggered the huge panic in 2007 that Warren Buffett warned about as early as 2003 is that when you create another financial uh, bet based on on uh, let's say some original stock, you have created something that might not be obvious what could happen from that. There may be unintended consequences. So for mm -hmm. example, let's say you have a house and you insure your house against burning down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have a vested interest in that. You're paying the premium, but you're trying to keep the house from burning down, obviously. Mm -hmm. Now, what if anybody could bet on your house burning down or not? Then you would have a situation where the amount of financial uh, transactions that would occur are far greater than what you would realize from just one house burning down. You'd think, well, it's one oh, insurance yeah. paying off. Yeah, yeah. What if it was a thousand insurance policies paying off? Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. And then let's create a bet on the insurance policy now, which is what happened uh, during that Great Recession problem is that there were all of these derivatives of the insurance policy. Oh, right. So they were, they were kind of insurance policies. They're really just bets on whether that insurance policy would pay off or not. Mm -hmm. 
And those things multiplied the impact of any unwinding of an investment. And so what Burry is saying is that that same thing has now occurred with all of these indexes. And in fact, I'm quite sure he's right. You can see the volume of, of uh, derivative options trading going on out there in the dozens of thousands of contracts a day on different price points. And so you don't, if all of a sudden these prices are plunging, you can't get out of those obligations. You can't exit. There's no buyers for your position. Or if you're a seller, there's, or if you're a buyer, there's no sellers for your position. The, the market in derivatives is so much more thinly traded that when it goes wrong, the only out that you have is to own that, that uh, underlying security. You get, you get put the security. Or sell so it you, or whatever your situation or is. Or sell it or whatever, yeah. So if you are making money for your pension fund, by selling options on the S&P 500 and suddenly it just jacks down massively and you can't roll out of that position, you can't get to another position, you can't get the safety, you get to buy the S&P 500. Well, here's the catch. These guys are betting on this thing leveraged mm -hmm. and they can't buy the S&P 500. They don't have enough money and they're going to get, they'll just bankrupt them and they'll take everything they've got. They'll clean them out. And so this is a huge problem. These, 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 these derivative contracts are argued in favor of now, are by those people who new? want to have price matching. No, they've been around for a long time. That's what I thought. We trade them. So why is we this trade derivatives like all the time. a thing? Because they're, they're, again, seeking yield. No, and I mean, so, why is this a thing that that so, that somebody's worried about? I mean, if if oh, they've been around oh, oh, oh. for a long time, that they're everyone's always leveraged them. If this is, it's not new. So, well, I think the, the what their fear is is that these things work right up until they don't, and where they don't, in other words, they work really good to generate extra income mm -hmm. with very very low risk. We're talking about risk in the range of you know. Uh, 2% probability you're going to have a problem, 1% probability you're going to have a problem, right? Very, very, very low risk. And they're working great right up until they don't. And this is what Burry is saying is that as this passive indexing starts to unwind, these derivatives will find themselves in trouble at that 1% level. In other words, the 1% happens. Mm -hmm. And that just, it just doesn't happen. But when it happens, because it definitely could, when it happens, it's catastrophic. So they're they're betting a huge amount of money to make a little amount of money with a very high probability that they're going to win. Wouldn't that have been true in every crash in the last, ever since they invented those things? Yeah, it would be true. Um, and definitely options traders get wiped out in every crash. Yeah. No question about it. But the volume of the indexes now is unprecedented. The amount of money that's in there and the amount of money that's being put on derivatives. Okay. Never happened before. Okay. So this is what he's saying is that the basically is that the fundamental concept of the problem here is the same one that resulted in the market meltdowns in 2008. He said, you know, I need, we don't know when it'll happen. It's just that it's, you know, like most bubbles, the longer it goes on, the worse the crash is going to be. So, man, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm just concluding here that 
that the you know, bet take a deep is against and, the S and P five hundred. <laughs> yeah, I would say really take a deep breath and and realize that if you don't know what you're investing in when you're investing in an index fund or an ETF, then what are you you're doing is gambling, and like any gamble, there's an odds that it will not pay off, and if the odds that it doesn't pay off hit, right? If it hits, what would be the impact to you on your financial future? What would be your impact on your financial independence, your ability to retire? If that number is severely, uh, if, if the end result is severe, I think you got to really seriously think about what Burry's saying. He's a smart guy. We've, we've highlighted this problem in the past. Uh, Carl Icahn has high, highlighted this problem in the past as well about the potential mm -hmm. illiquidity of these massive yeah. passive investments. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen right away. I'm saying that just recognize that you are gambling and there's a risk. What are you gambling? And are you willing to take that risk? Take a look at it, you guys. And on that happy note, yeah. let's talk about what to do about that if you don't want to take the risk next time. <laughs> okay. Gosh, I hate to leave it on a, on a low note. What can we be grateful for in this moment? We can be grateful that we are... Okay, I don't like to be grateful for other people. I can be grateful in this moment of learning about this massive risk that is going on. Um, that becoming aware can be uncomfortable, but a necessary step to protecting myself. All right. Well, what are you I'm, grateful I'm for? I'm just grateful it's uh, the hurricane's not hitting our house today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's fair. Blue skies that outside. Works. Right on. <laughs> All right, guys. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. Bye. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.